What's going on guys? Welcome back to Consuming Crime with Jen and Jules. It is Jules here. Before we get started, make sure you give us five stars wherever you're listening. Tell your friends, tell your family if they like true crime to go ahead and check us out. And if you guys have any ideas as far as what stories I should tell, let me know and I would love to talk about it and give my input, kind of tell the story the way that I tell stories. And yeah, so without further ado, let's get into today's case. I'm actually continuing to cover American Detective with Lieutenant Joe Kenda on Discovery Plus. And today it's going to be season one, episode five. The episode is called Tale of Two Knives. I'm also going to call it Tale of Two Knives. I couldn't really think of anything else to call it. It's January 10th, 2010 in Ridgeland, Mississippi. There is a man on the phone reporting his girlfriend dead in his bedroom. And the first thing I noticed about this 911 phone call is he's just, he's very kind of like normal and calm sounding. Like he's like, yeah, my girlfriend's in bed, dead. Like she's, I have it verbatim and we'll get to that once I get to that note. But he just sounded really calm. So immediately I was like, we gotta talk to this boyfriend. In this town, Ridgeland, Mississippi, it's a small town. Murders like this did not happen often, if at all. Which brings the question, why do you have a homicide department if it doesn't happen? I mean, I guess they need it anyway. Anyway, Lieutenant Frank Dillard III, this is who we're interviewing in the documentary. He is a detective with Ridgeland Police Department. He is now retired. On that day, or that night, supervisor calls him and says there's a homicide. So immediately he heads on over. He meets with Brian Myers. Brian Myers is the commander of the investigation unit, investigative unit department. Yes. Frank was known for his interrogations. So this guy, Frank Dillard, so Detective Dillard, he is extremely impressive. We get to his interrogations later. I have to say for the fact that he's following code and it's really hard these days to find officers that follow code, at least in the documentaries, he does a really good job of getting information, guys. Spoiler alert, kind of. So he's on the scene, and they see that the victim was 22-year-old Carmen Sanders, and she died of a stab wound to the chest. Not just one stab wound to the chest, multiple stab wounds to the chest. This was definitely an overkill, guys. Carmen Sanders, she was very bright. She was from a city called Natchez. She was a waitress and she also went to university medical school. So she had a lot going for her. And it's, I mean, it's unfortunate when anybody passes away, but it's like she was on a good path. Like, I wonder what happened that she ended up at the wrong place at the wrong time or, you know. The boyfriend had reported that he was out and about When he got home, he noticed property was stolen and his girlfriend was murdered. This guy's name is Michael Mason. This is the boyfriend of the victim. There is no forced entry, so the attacker must know the victim. So either the door was unlocked or they knew each other. At least she knew him well enough or her well enough to get inside the house. The apartment was, as detectives describe, in disarray. No, I think that just means it was like messed up. Maybe it was just messy. Clothes were everywhere. It was just scattered. And they don't know what that means. Is that indicative that somebody was searching for something? Or is it just like a messy place? By the TV stand, the officers see there is a dust-free area. This might have been where there was a console. Like a gaming console. Weird observation. In the bedroom, they see that there must have been a struggle. Things must have been knocked over. And the mattress was moved a little bit. They describe this room again, 
in disarray. The victim was wrapped in a comforter and the knife went all the way through, like through her chest into the floor. Her eyes were also open. And one of the detectives in the documentary, in the interview, he's like, oh, I wish you could have seen through them to see like who did it. I don't know anybody besides you, bud, that wants to see what the victim saw before she died. Her jeans were unbuttoned and her shirt was disheveled, so maybe there was sexual assault, but we won't know until later. She was stabbed in the abdomen multiple, multiple times. This was described as a blitz attack, which is essentially an attack that is violent and fatal. There was a smaller knife with a broken handle by the body, so they collected this and tested it for DNA, or they went and sent it to get DNA tested, because sometimes when a killer or someone stabbing is stabbing, um, they can cut themselves and leave their own blood. They go into the kitchen and they see that the knife drawers are open, which is really weird. Like, it makes me think, did they go in to get the knives and then go, or did they go, go back and then... It's really weird for them to take somebody else's knives, especially if they were planning on killing this person, unless it was spontaneous. There was also dishwashing detergent everywhere. This makes it harder to lift prints and use fingerprint dust. So whoever did this has either killed before or he learned this while being locked up. Officers asked Mississippi Crime Lab to come and assist. After this, they go to her car and her purse was still in there with her phone, which means she probably left it in there to go get something from the house really quick. So like maybe she forgot something, went in real quick to come back out. It's the only reason you would leave your stuff in your car. Even then, I don't leave my phone in my car though just because I'm always thinking stuff like this is going to happen where like I'm going to get kidnapped. But then again, I'm a paranoid true crime podcast host, so... Detective Dillard went to the 911 dispatch area to hear the phone call. This is where we get into that super weird phone call from Michael Mason, the boyfriend. He says, My PlayStation 3 is missing and my girlfriend is dead in my bedroom. Someone stole my stuff and killed my girlfriend. Two different sentences that he said. What? Like, it was like an afterthought. Like, oh yeah, my PlayStation's missing. Um everything's in disarray i don't think he said that oh and also my girlfriend's dead in my room later on carmen's mother ends up at the station and she is screaming my baby is gone my baby is gone michael killed my baby so immediately the mother is saying her boyfriend michael mason had to have done this they send in detective cassandra dotson to go talk to her elizabeth who is carmen's mother that's her name she is saying that Carmen was a people person, she had a life plan, she's going to school to be a medical tech, she worked several jobs, and lived with Michael Mason for rent convenience, basically. She says Michael is jealous, verbally abusive, and threatened her. At the time, they weren't getting along, their relationship was deteriorating, and Carmen had trouble studying as well because he would have friends over, and so he, she would have to like study in the back room so that they wouldn't interrupt her headspace. Which makes sense. Like, I cannot study for the life of me if there's any background noise. Around this time, Michael got into her email and started going through it. He accused her of cheating and was very negative towards her, even stopped talking to her at one point. And once during an argument, it got so intense that he ended up pushing her during the argument. It wasn't clear if he was ever abusive past that point, though. She told her mom that she wanted to move out, and she told her mom this through her email. So her mom's thinking maybe Michael found out that she wanted to leave him, and that's what led him to killing her daughter. Detective Dillard goes to interview Michael, and he is different than what he sounded like on the phone. That's what he says. And he's also a lot different than what he expected him to be like. 
So Michael is distraught. He doesn't want a lawyer and he just wants to know what happened to his girlfriend. He admits that they did have a lot of fighting and he did at one point think that she was cheating with an ex, Chris Baker. This was an old college sweetheart of hers. He said he did see an email about loving Chris in the past and he did get jealous, but he was sorry for the argument that it caused. Michael's routine on that day was at 6.30 in the morning, his alarm goes off. He goes to work and he works as a substitute teacher at a middle school and he works there from 7.30 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. She did text him during that time and say, I know you're mad, but I love you. And that was around 3.35. He didn't respond because he was still a little bit annoyed with her. And then after that, he worked at a restaurant immediately. Like I said, immediately after. When he got home, he knew something was wrong from the mess. So it wasn't that he was messy. It was that um, somebody went and messed it up. At first, and this part like really bums me out because I always see YouTubers pulling pranks like this, which is so stupid listen like pull all the pranks in the world but like where the line i think is drawn is like when you play with somebody's like when you pretend to be dead like it's that's not a funny joke it's just not but anyway yeah he goes into his room sees the comforter wrapped around her with blood and he thought she was joking and obviously she wasn't because when he pulled up the comforter and he noticed that yeah she was dead he said that that was the worst thing he had ever seen in his entire life. After that, he ran out and called 911. Again, in the phone call, he did not sound like somebody who just saw his girlfriend dead, but he could just be one of those people that kind of goes into like shock and just goes really like monotone. Detective asks him, will we find your DNA on the knife? And he responds immediately, no, sir, you will not. He does say that the PlayStation is like his second girlfriend, which I thought, okay, now it's really not the time to bring that up, but okay, Michael. Detective describes him as a gentle giant, and this guy probably did not do it. I also do not think he did it anymore, even though the whole time I was like, let's get to Michael Mason. We gotta talk to him, but I don't think he did it either. To confirm his alibi, he said from 7.30 a.m. to 11 p.m. he was at work, right? He went as a substitute teacher. And then he went to work at the restaurant. He did call, detective did call both of those jobs and they did confirm that he was there during those times. So the lover, Chris Baker, let's talk about that guy. Why is she talking about him in the emails? Is she in contact with him? Did she cheat on Michael with him? Let's get into that. Oh wait, before we get into that, um, let's meet with the medical examiner. The medical examiner says that there was no evidence of sexual activity or assault, which is good. Whoever did this did not assault her body. Only Carmen's blood was on the scene, which is unfortunate because now we don't have any other DNA. She was stabbed more than a dozen times and there were two knives. She knows this because they were at different depths. On top of that, one of the blades was broken into her rib cage and was still in her body. And this was a steak knife. They probably were stabbing her and then it got stuck and then they went to get another knife and then go... Like, you have all that time to leave the room and come back and still want to, like, resume. I mean, it's the, it takes a psychopath to stab somebody in general, but, like, bro. This was post-mortem, by the way. So the attacker went to the kitchen to get a butcher knife after she was already dead, and then that's when he went and he or she went and stabbed through the chest into the concrete floor. Now we're getting into the lover, or the suspected lover, Chris Baker. They had Uncle in for an interview and they had Detective Dotson started off. He says they dated for a while and he did know about Michael, but he didn't want to intervene. He does look really, really upset as well. 
He had no anger towards her. She was very sweet, and all she wanted to do was be happy, and she always had it rough. This is according to Chris. He did tell her that if anything in the future changed with Michael, that he would always be there, which I think is really sweet. He asked the detective, how did she die? And she says she was stabbed. So after that, he starts getting upset. At first, I was thinking, are you upset because you're guilty? And then it quickly turns into, I think he really loved her. He says he starts sobbing into his hands and he starts saying like, she was too good of a person to die at 22 years old. And yeah, I don't know. At this point, I don't think he did it. On that Friday night, he said that he was at home, which was 180 miles away. Based on his phone pings from that night, he was at home. And that checks out. That's his alibi. Which, the sus part of me is like, could he have left his phone? Like... Somebody's gonna kill somebody and they could use their phone as an alibi. You could totally just leave your phone at home and then have somebody use your phone so it pings and then like go and then come back. I don't know. I don't think he did it though. It's just like, it's not an airtight alibi as detectives say. They start to look back at the boyfriend and he did mention a couple of coworkers that had come over before to play some games. They need to make sure that they vet every single person and they start focusing on a man named Robert Harvey. Detective Dillard heard the name and he was like, that name sounds really familiar. So he goes and he asks a detective that might know the name. That detective says, oh yeah, I was going to serve him a warrant on a sexual assault case. When he went to use the arrest warrant, he had fled to Florida for about a year and a half to two years. And that sexual assault, we'll talk about it for a minute. The victim said that she met him at a local mall, they became friends, and she went to his place. Once they were inside, he became a completely different person. She said that she was afraid of him and he threatened her and so because of that she let him do whatever which i'm not even going to get into you guys can only imagine he told her if basically if she didn't do what he said that he would kill her immediately after it happened she reported it he also has a reputation with local prostitutes including some police informants they all said this guy was really nice until you got to his environment you either do what he said or he would hurt you they also find something else in his record this next part has had me extremely baffled. He strangled his kid's mother in the past, killing her. What is he doing out of prison playing video games with Michael Mason? In 1996, he was found guilty of manslaughter. He was sentenced to 20 years in prison. And after five years, he was released because of overcrowding. Aren't they only supposed to release nonviolent crimes for overcrowding? Pretty sure murdering somebody is a violent crime. Good, good going, Mississippi, if that's where he was arrested. Detective Dawson reached out to Harvey's mother, and she actually knew this dude's mom. The detective knew this crazy psychopath's mom from school. So she has to be very careful when talking to her. She can't sound too accusatory because that's still her son and she wants to get information out of her without saying, hey, I think your son's a killer, even though she should know by now her son's a killer. She told the detective that he had called her and said he went over to his friend's house, found his friend, female friend, in the bed, in the bedroom, and she was stabbed 22 times. First of all, she wasn't on the bed, she was on the floor next to the bed. Second of all, how did you know she was stabbed 22 times? Third of all, why does your mom know this before it's released to the media? That's weird. This dude called his mom, told him details about a murder that even detectives didn't know. 
Robert also told her about the soap. I don't know how that came up. Like, oh, there was also a dishwashing detergent or dish soap in the kitchen. Why are you bringing that up? Are you venting to her about murder you just committed? He says, it hasn't been on the news yet, mom. Like, what do you, what? And she doesn't think this is weird. In the past, this guy always flees. So they end up following him. I don't know where he fled to, but I think it was a different state. I don't know why I didn't write it down. They put him on surveillance and for a couple of days he didn't do anything but go to his mom's house and back to work. Mom's house and back to work. And now they're getting frustrated. Like, we need to catch this guy. So I don't, I actually don't know why they don't just call him in for questioning. Maybe because he'll flee? Oh yeah, I just said that. <laughs> anyway, they call the local police and they inform them that his license is suspended. So now all they have to do is catch him on a traffic violation and his tags were also invalid. In the traffic stop, officers are prepared for the worst. In the dramatization, you guys, there's like five cop cars, like 10 cops, a bunch of guns, and I'm like, okay, like, it's just a dude that ran a stop sign. Like, okay, okay, I know he murdered somebody. I know that he did. I know that he did. But what I'm trying to say is like, in order to get him into custody, why do you need that many cars? Why do you need that many resources? Like, does that make sense? I kind of like almost messed up there, but I tried to redeem myself. I just think that's a lot of cops for trying to get somebody into the station. Do you know what I'm saying? Okay, hopefully you guys know what I'm saying. Anyway, he was compliant and they took him into custody. See, he didn't have a gun. He like put his hands out when he was compliant. Detective Dillard is interviewing him now. And this is where we get to like the impressiveness of his interrogation skills. He is polite and calm. Who's polite and calm? Oh, Dillard describes um, Robert as being polite and calm. He said, yeah, I've been to the house about twice. I played Madden on the PlayStation with Michael. <clears throat> they ask him, what do you know about the murder of Carmen? He says nothing. He knows nothing about Carmen being murdered. Yet his mom knows details. Like, get your story straight, dude. He said he had never been to that house without Michael being there as well. That night that she was murdered he was with a female friend that he hadn't seen for a while we gotta find the female friend so detective dillard leaves the room both to call the female friend and confirm his alibi and also to kind of let robert sit there and think and lieutenant joe kenda puts it perfectly he says the biggest enemy when you're guilty is your mind you're thinking like what could the detective be learning when he is not in front of you so he calls that female friend and she tells the detective that she had not seen him in months. Now, Robert is saying that, as a matter of fact, he did know Carmen and him and Carmen were involved with each other, but they didn't want Michael to find out. He said, yeah, we had sex about three or four times. Uh, we had sex at my place, we had sex at her place. Uh, I went to have sex with her that night and she was dead. I saw the knife and the blood. So now he has put himself there alone with the homicide victim. He went from not knowing her to being there on that night. The detective is like, okay, well, tell me about the tattoos on her chest. And he says that he's never seen them. Detectives are like, well, I thought you guys have sex. This was like, she keeps her shirt on during sex. <laughs> what? Dude, you never had sex with her. Like, the fact that she's now deceased and you're talking about her like this like go yourself the detective says what if i told you the handle comes back a match to your dna this is not confirmed i did not learn this this could be one of those tactics where a detective tells you something that's not true 
but they are allowed to do that to gauge your reaction. He says, that's impossible. So Detective Dillard keeps kind of pushing and pushing and pushing to the point where he says, okay, I touched the knife. I was just going to take the knife out. And at that point, he asked for an attorney. But now it's like, we have you, dude. Like, we have you. So this moron pole piece of shit gets charged with capital murder. And he never goes into detail on what happened that night and what led to that. The only thing we can assume is Carmen went to the apartment to pick something up. And maybe before meeting... Oh, she was going to meet a friend for dinner, actually. So she went to her apartment to pick something up, went in, and Robert either walked in or she let him in. He might have intended on raping her, which we know he had done in the past. She resisted. It got ugly. He killed her. And then on his way out, took the console and sold it for $100. So yeah, that must have been why that girl earlier just kind of let him because she knew it would kill her but at the same time like if it doesn't kill you it's gonna like with your mind for like the rest of your life so i mean it's a double-edged sword for sure but may 2011 he pled guilty and he is serving life in mississippi i'm not sure if they mean life 25 years or life life just literally just because he wanted to like satiate his needs and we have one less beautiful motivated human being on this planet yeah that's pretty much it i did not even talk about my sponsor we didn't talk about the sponsor i'm even reading a new book okay sponsor for today really quick before i end the show is audible audible is super awesome audiobook app where you can listen and not just read books i don't really like reading i always zone out in the middle of my paragraph so i prefer to listen to audiobooks and i listen to audible i'm subscribed audible i'm never going to like sponsor somebody that i don't personally use just because i feel like it's kind of fake um or at least if i try them out and i like them i'll let you know about it but anyway right now i'm listening to uh the art of letting go i'm on chapter four i really like it it's a lot of points that you you kind of should already know but hearing it from an outsider's perspective is a little bit different i mean you guys all know this um, but yeah, make sure you check that out, guys. Our link is audibletrial.com slash consumingcrime. Again, that is audibletrial.com slash consumingcrime. And yeah, that's pretty much it for today, guys. Thank you for consuming crime with me, and you'll hear me slash see me next week. Bye.